Authors on the Air. I'm your host, Pam Stack. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Tonight, you're in for a treat with a special in-conversation episode. Stay tuned. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Authors on the Air. I'm so glad to be here with you, but only for a moment because tonight is a very special in-conversation broadcast with guest host, author Jeff Crawford. Jeff Big Guy Crawford, and I go back quite a few years now. He's been a guest on my show. Um, He is a writer from North Carolina. He is a former cowboy, a hunter, and even though he is a Gator fan, I love him anyway. Um, Jeff, you have a very special guest with you tonight, don't you? I do. It's somebody that I have uh, admired and um and and I don't mind telling anybody. I'm a little bit starstruck tonight. So I may him and ha and uh a couple of times, but uh uh Revis Wortham is on here tonight and uh, and uh, it is uh as far as meeting writers, this is this is one for the bucket list. Well, have fun uh, and I I'm going to kick back and listen. All right. Um I did the, it wasn't a criminal background check, but I did some background work just so I could get this intro sort of right. Um, Originally from Paris, Texas, technically, but in actuality called Chicota, Texas home, the community where some of his extended family lived. He went to W.W. Samuel High School before attending Eastfield Junior College and then later East Texas State, where after a couple of direction changes, he settled in on a teaching degree, which he used to establish a fine career. As his educational vocation began to wind down, his writing vocation began to take off. Now his name is attached to thousands of newspaper articles and magazine articles, and he's the author of at least 11 novels and several short stories. Tonight we welcome one of the stronger voices in American literature and a man that I am in awe of and couldn't be more impressed by. It is a high honor and privilege for me to welcome Revis Wortham here tonight for a bit of conversation. So welcome, Revis. Jeff, well, that I, I don't deserve that kind of introduction, man. I'm humbled. Thank you so much for for uh, for those kind words and uh, for having me on today. Oh shoot, it's it's uh, it's entirely my honor and privilege. Um, I've got you know I've got a bit of a I'm not a stickler for details, so I've got a little bit of an outline, so I wouldn't just you know waste a lot of time just ooing and aahing and and him hawing looking for words. So I thought we'd follow this but a little bit. So we're going to jump right in, and, and not necessarily about the a book or the most recent book or whatever it, to begin with. We want to talk about passions beyond writing um, so people can get an idea of who you are exactly. So before we talk specifically about your books, I'd like to take a moment and talk about those interests outside of writing. I know to use the word uh, outdoorsman paints with a really wide brush because it entails a great many things, things that you and I have in common. But tell everyone what you do to decompress or recharge. The outdoor lifestyle isn't exactly what people necessarily picture in their mind's eye when they picture writers, but we're not all patched elbows and pipe smokers. Well, you know, uh, thank you, Jeff. I, uh, I, I got into writing due to my love for the outdoors. I've I've always been an outdoorsman. Dad taught me to hunt and fish uh, when I was a child. I was an asthmatic kid, so I couldn't I didn't play competitive sports. Couldn't do it. 
but I could uh, I could uh, fish and hunt and and walk all day long with a shotgun hunting quail or or go out in the field hunting doves. So that was that was how the old man raised me, and and it, it served me very well. It was it was it, it was the good. It's a good sport for me. I, I always learned a lot of, uh, about life while I was hunting, uh, while I was fishing, or, or with the old men in the outdoors that were trying to teach me something. You know, back then they were old, and I look in the mirror this morning, and, and I'm the same age as they were. So they didn't, they weren't as old as I thought they were. But uh, I, I hunted, fished, canoe, camped, hiked, backpacked, did all that for for many years, and. Truthfully, that's what got me started in the writing world. Uh, I wanted to, uh, to to write like a, a hero of mine, a, a well-known author back in the 50s and 60s named Robert Rourke. I've always been fascinated by his books, and, and those books were part of my upbringing also. And so I wanted, to, I wanted to start out in the writing world the same way he did. And so I started writing newspaper columns for a small town in northeast Texas called the Paris News. Uh, my first column was published in uh, 1988 by them, and within a year, I was self-syndicating myself uh, across across the state of Texas and Oklahoma, to the point where I had over 50 newspapers uh, on my list that was was running my outdoor columns, which were not pure hunting and fishing, but there there was a lot of outdoor humor in them. Uh, the, the the lighter side of the outdoors for the the things that most hunters or fishermen or or uh, folks that, that enjoy uh, outdoor activities, uh, the, the kind of things that they get to, that they've enjoyed over the years, the, the, the funny stories, the things that happen while you're out there. And that became my newspaper column, uh, and it, it, uh, it still continues to run in Paris, Texas. Uh, 30, uh, 33 years later, they, they still have me there in the newspaper. Uh, almost went to King Features Syndicate. Uh, they called me, and they wanted to... to put my column across the nation. They were going to, as they called it, I was the outdoors Dave Barry that they were going to promote at the time, which tickled me <laughs> to death. I was ready to go, man, because I'm a huge Dave Barry fan, and I love, I love the, my chosen sport. Unfortunately, that was at the exact same time that uh, the Internet woke up, and uh, newspapers began to lose uh, funding and lose advertisers and began to cut back on what they published. And, of course, uh, the way my luck runs, I was standing right in the way of that big gun, and the person who began to cut were colonists. And so I never got that big break with King Features, but at the same time, uh, it taught me to write, uh, producing a newspaper column once a week, every week on deadline. Um, as you said, now I've written over 2,000 newspaper and magazine articles, and so they allowed me to polish my writing style, uh, which eventually transited into uh, my fiction. That is such a neat beginning. Um, I, I know there's I know there's a, a, a ton of writers that start out that way, but most of them don't get the, uh, the widespread that you did as consistent as you have, and I think that's fantastic. Um, and I'll I, I tell you what, I, I tell, you do something now. I wish you would do it more, uh, but you do something now that I'm sure has contributed to the the fans that you have, and I want to touch on that, and that's old-timey words. <laughs> I love that. I, I really yeah. do, mainly because, oh. mainly because you, you bring up things and people go, 
what in the heck is that? And I'm going, I hadn't heard that since Buck was a pup. You know, because I know all those words and those phrases because I grew up and everybody I knew talked that way. Um, that's why that particular segment and that this particular segment and those things that you do are such a are such a favorite of mine. Um, but what I like, because I've read some of your books, it doesn't stop with you just bringing them to our attention for a minute. They're incorporated often as seamlessly and necessarily into your writing as any comma or question mark. I do the same in my writing because I write quite a bit of period work, but mainly because I tend to write the way I talk, which probably isn't necessarily a good move. But using the old, oh, these old-timey words and phrases is how I was brought up. So talk about the importance of these, these words and phrases and why they shouldn't be allowed to lay fallow or go to seed. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Jeff. Um, I'm, I'm afraid that we're losing uh, a lot of history through uh, a lot of historical language just through, through as, as the years progress and we lose the older people that spend a harder time than, than we even can consider um, uh, these days. Uh, the people that raised me, my grandparents, my parents, they all grew up in the Depression. And here in, in Texas, especially in North, East Texas, Northeast Texas, we had our own way of talking. Uh, we came, most of us, if we traced our ancestry back, we traced it back to Appalachia and the hills of Tennessee, Kentucky, West Virginia. Uh, that's where our ancestors came from. They drifted down to the Red River and, and got stuck there on the, cotton, the, the bottomlands in uh, northeast Texas. And they brought that way of talking down here. And I, I, as you, I grew up with it, you know, and, and I use those words a lot now that you've been thinking about it because that's how our, my folks spoke. But uh, one of my daughters, my youngest daughter was about 13 or 14. Maybe, nah, she was probably older than that, probably 16 or 17, I guess. And we were in the truck. We going to pull out on the road one day. And there was an unusually uh, heavy amount of traffic out there. And I couldn't get out on the road to make my turn. And I just mentioned in the car to, to my wife, both of my girls, I said, you know, somebody must have let the gate down because I can't get out. <laughs> I knew that was coming. You know, and, and, and the girls looked at me and said, what in the world do you mean let the gate down? <laughs> and I had to explain to them that, you know, if you're on a ranch or if you have cattle or horses pinned up in a corral, you let the gate down, first thing they're going to do is come charging out. And that's what it was like on the road. And so I explained that to, to my youngest daughter, and she said, Dad, why don't you put that in your Facebook stuff? Because people don't understand the way you talk. And so that became a, a huge part of my, my Facebook presence uh, that I did. I have two pages, one, uh, Revis Wortham, uh, and the other one, Revis Wortham. And so those, those appear on my Facebook page. Not as regular as I'd like because I've been I've been heavy into wrapping up uh, my I think my 13th novel just this this past couple of months and so I haven't been able to put those words up but those are words that we're losing we're losing that flavor that we had so long ago you know I don't call uh, barbed wire by that name it's Bob wire that's the wire that we that, that I grew up with and I've tangled with it all my life there mm-hmm. I, I use words in my my, my story so my Red River series is set back in the 19th on the Red River here in Texas, and that was the way of speaking back then. And so I, I realized that I had to, to use more of these and clarify these words as uh, as my writing progressed. You know, in, in one book, somebody uh, used a, a single tree on somebody to beat them up with. 
Well, I, <laughs> in my world, everybody knew what Singletree was. But my editors came back and they said, we don't know what that is. So I had to explain this part of a harness for horses to pull a wagon. And and, right. and we have words like, I, I said, somebody got jobbed with a knife. And they said, well, then you uh, you misspelled the word. It's jabbed with a knife. And I said, not where I come from. You get jobbed with a knife pretty quick if you're not careful. And so That's it. those words, yeah, those words in those cases, uh, I, I realized that they were dying away and I wanted to preserve them. So my characters use those those old phrases, not to excess, but in conversation. And if sometimes if I have to uh, come back and clear it up, I will. But most of the time, uh, most of the time, it, it, it's self-explanatory. You know, on occasion, I have to I have to help uh, editors that are not from our part of the country understand what we're doing. Uh, and, and in one sense, where I, I explained I, in, in the, the book, I had somebody cutting bailing wire with a pair of dikes. Well, these people have never heard wire cutters called that. You wouldn't believe the conversation that we had before I explained to them that those are wire cutters and that's all they are. And so, you know, we we worked through those. But it, it's not just limited to those old days. It, it, it even occurs here uh, in modern times. I have another series called the Sunny Hawk uh, series featuring a Texas, contemporary Texas Ranger out of uh, West Texas. And he drives a, a dually pickup truck. And and one of my one of my uh, proofreaders, my editors, uh, copy editors, uh, sent me a note and said, I don't know what uh, dually is. And I said, Well, it's a truck with four tires on the back and one, two on the front, and that's what we use to pull heavy trailers with. And they came back and they said, Well, so what you're saying is those four tires in the back are in line with the ones in the front. And I said, No, 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 this is, this is not a military vehicle. Those those that truck has really wide hips, so it's, it's two tires on each side, one outside on the other, and and you know, these things like that we're accustomed to here in my world uh, are unfamiliar to folks that have never been to the country or to Texas, and so I try to incorporate all those those phrases and sayings into my work, so that in addition to entertaining everyone, they're going to be preserved for the future. Not everybody would get it. You know, if you just threw out something like stiffer in a poker or slower than lasses in January, yeah, you know yep. they That's they just true. don't get. I, I, you know, the the very first time I did Pam's show, it was it was the first big time I had sat down and talked about one of my books, and so the whole thing was a blur. But I do remember her asking me about old time vocabulary that I use in my book and the way I talked and whatnot. And I remember describing it as being, and I never had thought about it before then, but as being poetic. And, and, and I, I live right here under the Blue Ridge mountains. I know what you're talking about. Um, but the, to me, yeah, some of it is, is garbled and bastardized words that we've just become accustomed to. But that also, that also is a poetic language. Um, that southern country speak has a has a flavor all of its own that you can't duplicate anywhere else. And I and I do my very best, and the same as you, to see that it doesn't go away. Um, <clears throat> you know, because southerners will use um, expressions instead of saying, um, say I changed my mind or this didn't go the way I thought it would, they'll flower it up and not even mean to, and they'll say, you know, things have changed their course another way. Sure, and, it's, sure. and it's as simple as putting those words in 
that makes that sentence sound a whole lot better. At they, least it me. does. It, 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 you're right. It's music to our ears. It's, it's the things that we grew up with. You know, my grandmother, if somebody was all upset, she'd say she had a hissy fit or, or, you know, <laughs> or she had a rigor. And, and I knew what a rigor was, and, but a lot of people don't. And, and that's, that's something that we're losing here in, 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 uh, in our part of the world. And you can go to East Texas, and they speak completely different than they do out in West Texas because the state's so big. You know, we have five mm-hmm. geographic regions. And so I go out to East Texas with, to visit a friend of mine, uh, who, a writer named Joe Lansdale, who lives in Akadotis. And if you've never read Joe's stuff, it's absolutely wonderful. But Joe and I will get together uh, out in East Texas, and we'll start talking. And there are people that don't understand a word we're saying. <laughs> because of the way, because of what we did, we had a friend of ours, a uh, mutual friend from Italy, come over, and we took him out uh, uh, to. He wanted to go buy a shirt at a Western store, Westernware store, and Joe and I got in the truck, and and this friend of ours got in the front seat, and I said, "Well, where is it?" He says, "Down the road a piece." So I pulled out on the road, and Joe and I started talking. And I said, "He's going to be going he, he, get there," and he goes, "Well, you know what? If you just keep on looking, you'll find a place to turn in a little bit. Don't worry about it." And I said, well, you know, I'm about to run out of gas. We'll keep going any further. He said, well, we're not going to Amarillo. We're just going up here to the store. And and we pulled into a parking lot, and, and our friend said, would you pull over for a second? And I said, sure. And I got, a, got a, pulled into a parking space, and he looked at us. He said, I haven't understood a word that you guys have said since we got in the car. You guys have explained this entire conversation. I said, well, number one, we're not in a car. We're in a truck. So let, let's start with that. And so you know that's that's the thing that that it, it it's part of us. It's it's part of the, the the people that I grew up with and part of the language. And I'm afraid that it's fading out as uh, more and more people are coming into the state of Texas that aren't from the region. And then you know these people are of, of course are bringing on their way of thinking. So uh, I try to make sure that it's all in my book so that the folks the folks my age or, or younger folks that are coming up when they read it they'll say, well that's pretty cool. I wonder what that is. And then they can, you know, if they don't get it in uh, in the book, they can go to my website. I have a lot of old-timey words on my website that I've used, and I need to go back and add some more of those in because there's more and more of them. But, uh, but you know, that's uh, that's that's what we do. I, I want to make my my books as real as possible and as true to the, the, the state and as true to the era as I possibly can. Well, that's a, that's a fine, that's a fine thing to do. And, uh, Shoot, maybe one day me and you'll collaborate and just make a dictionary. Well, you know what we ought to do? The first thing we got to do is get together and drink a little brown water and talk about books. We can do that. We can do that. Yeah. Let's talk about your inspirations. Um, and before I want to get into your writing process and, and what exactly you're, current, you're currently looking at for your future, I'd like to hear about who inspires you and who you consider important to writing and why you um, – and why they are, um, I think this will be the right lead into how and why you write like you do. Well, you know, I I was I was a voracious reader from the time I was uh, uh, in elementary school. I was one of the only kids in my entire elementary that could actually check out two books at a time because I read them so fast, and, and my uh, our librarian just allowed me free reign to, to read everything that I wanted. So I, I read a ton of books. Started out with Cowboy Sam, you know, that was my 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 reading material and Will Rogers read a lot of his stuff. I guess it was uh, the, the the major influences in in my writing and the people that I that I hang my hat on are uh, 
one I, one I just mentioned, uh, Robert Rourke, Robert Chester Rourke. He was a, a magazine uh, 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 writer for, for Field and Stream. He wrote a syndicated newspaper column, right, began right after World War II and, and continued up until his death in 1965. And uh, Rourke wrote a book called The Old Man and the Boy, which is the perfect book to give any young man that will help him get started reading and help him understand how to how to become a, a good person and a good citizen. And so I read The Old Man and the Boy by Rourke, and then I read The Old Man's Boy Grows Older. And those books impacted me uh, in more ways than I can explain. They, they were a framework and outline for my life. And so I, I, I read his, everything that he wrote up until uh, all the way through his, his uh his fiction, his outdoor books, his hunting books. And then I, the world opened up to me when I got my library card uh, at the public library and was allowed to go into the adult section and read uh, fiction that, that I could not read when I was a young man. I discovered a guy named Donald E. Westlake who wrote uh, uh, mysteries, but they were also, there was a lot of humor in those mysteries. And he he grabbed me by the throat, and, and I, I couldn't get away from his work. So I, I read everything that he wrote. And uh, there's another author that is not as well known as, as, as Mr. Westlake, who I just missed meeting. He passed away just a few years before I got into this business. But uh, a guy named uh, William C. Anderson who wrote, again, a lot of humor. Uh, his was contemporary, but it was a lot of travel books. And so uh, I, I – I, I was reading those books, and I read some books by an outdoorsman you may have read, uh, Jeff, called Gene Hill, and and another one called Pat McManus. Um, and, I love and Pat, Pat McManus. Pat was a great guy. He dry as a bone. When you talk to to, to Pat, it was like talking to the, uh, the the driest college professor you've ever talked to. Uh, but the man was brilliant on the page. He he's one of the few people that actually make me laugh out loud when I read his work. So uh, I, I read I read Pat's work and I met him a few years after I started writing my newspaper column and told him what an inspiration he was to me and so those are the guys that gelled in my head uh, and and started me on a writing career and, and led me to where uh, where I am today. You, in, in my in my books, there's there's not a lot of humor. But there's humor at the appropriate places. I use it to break up the tension in the book. Uh, I use oh, yeah. a lot of West Lakes techniques uh, when I'm writing. In fact, uh, my third book, The Right Side of Wrong, I um, one uh, one reviewer said that that book was a cross between West Lakes, The Fugitive Pigeon, and The Busybody. And when I read that that uh, review. Uh, in a professional publication, I went to my wife and I said, I can quit writing today. I have achieved something I never thought I would would, would reach, and that's my work being mentioned in, a, in, a, in the same paragraph as uh, Donald Westlake. And so those are the guys that, that really pushed me forward. Now, I'll, t- I'll tell you this. I struggled as a, writer, a fiction writer of novels for years until I read a, uh, a book by a guy you may have heard of. His name is Stephen King. I, I think he um, he's, yeah, he's got a couple I, of books out. He's got a couple of good ones out. He sure does. And, and, <laughs> and I have been, I, I've been, I, I picked his first book up uh, when it came out, Carrie, and I've been a fan and a collector of his first edition works ever since. 
And so uh, I was struggling with, with writing, trying to get what I wanted out, but I wasn't making any headway. And about that time, he put out a book called On, uh, On Writing, and I think it's the best book about the craft of writing that I've ever read. When I finished that book, a guy named David Morell, I don't know if you know David or not, uh, he's become a, a, a friend over the years. Yeah, you may know uh, the character that he created, a guy named Rambo. Uh, and uh-huh. I've been a fan of his books since 1972 when his first novel came out, uh, First Blood, which was the, the basis of the Rambo series. And I... Uh, I read his book. I sat down that first book. I sat down and tried to figure out what made it, what it was. I didn't. I'd never read a thriller before, uh, and so I read that. And at the same time, Stephen King's book came out on writing. David Morrell put one out called Lessons from a Lifetime of Writing. Those two books together showed me everything I needed to know. And not long after that, I I launched into writing my uh, my first novel, The Rock Hole. And, and it was published in 2011. But but they were the inspiration. They were they were the catalyst to actually getting that book written and getting it out. That's that's great. That's just great. Um, yeah yeah. King is King is. Well, I mean, he's everybody's, but he's he's huge huge inspiration to me. Um, sure. I've never I've never read anybody that can write as perfectly descriptive in as few words as he does. He writes he's so simply and covered so much ground. Yeah. He, yeah. He's, yeah. Just, he's just perfect paragraph. at that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. I want to put two subgroups together here and, and that doesn't mean anything to you, but it does to me because I'm looking at my notes <laughs> um, because they go hand in hand to me. I'd like for you to tell us your thinking when it comes to laying out and establishing character development and plot course. At the outset, are these written in stone to arrive, um, let's say, satisfactorily at a pre-designed ending, or do you allow things to unfold in a way that you might not have been planning or expecting insofar as personality traits for your character specifically or twists and side roads in the story in general? Now, that's a big, long, wordy way of asking if you're a plotter or a pantser, but I think it's deeper <laughs> than that. Yeah, you know what? Uh, I, I really hate that phrase, pantser. You know, people use it a lot, and, and that's Essentially, that's what I do. Uh, uh, plotter outline uh, to some some to excess. Uh, I just before I took this call with you, I was on a Zoom call with uh, my my best friend, uh, one of my two best friends, uh, John Gilstrap, who writes Jonathan Gray thrillers. John John Gilstrap and uh, Jeffrey Deaver, who wrote The Bone Collector. We have a we have a weekly Zoom meeting since we can't get together these days, and we talk about writing and whatever. And uh, Jeffrey is a plotter. Jeffrey Deaver, his outlines are 140 pages long, which just makes my head crack down the middle. I don't get that. I sat down, anytime I get ready to start a novel, anytime I get ready to start a newspaper call, anything, I sit down, I put my fingers on the keys, and I start tapping out words. And it is, Jeff, it's as if you were writing the, the the manuscript on your computer and it's coming up in front of me and I'm reading it as it comes up on my on my screen. That's how I write. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know who the characters are. I don't know who is going to walk on stage until they appear. 
my dialogue just reels off a lot, and I think that's how uh, Elmore Leonard says his his came to to mind. It just it reels off. I I take a couple of people, I put them in a situation, put them on a stage in my mind, and I get out of the way and let them talk and let them do what they are doing. Uh, that's what I've done from the rock hole. I've done it all the way through up until the novel that I was working on just today. And, and, and remind me if I get off track to, to tell you about that, this climax I'm working on today. But I, uh, I, I, I sit down uh, and start writing. And my first novel, The Rock Hole, I didn't know where it was going. I knew it was going to involve uh, a guy named Ned Parker, who was a small-town constable in rural northeast Texas. And I based that on my granddad, who was a part it was a farmer and, and constable in uh, Northeast Texas. So that, that's my, he's, he was my framework for my, uh, my main character, my protagonist. And then I just follow the story as it goes and, and it unfolds. And I am as shocked as everyone else when things happen. In fact, when I, I got to the end of my first novel, I'm typing along, my wife's in the living room and I just stopped. And I went, Oh my God. And she came running in. She didn't know what was going on. She said, what happened? And I said, I just figured out who the killer is. And she said, well, it is. it's your book. Of course you knew who the killer was. I said, no, I thought it was somebody else, but it's this guy. And so, you know, that's how I write. And then, and every time I sit down and put my fingers on a key to start, uh, start a new novel, that's how I do it. And Jeffrey, uh, we were talking just today, he says, he says it, it, it scares me. He said, you invest weeks and months into writing a book, and you don't know how it's going to come out. And I said, Jeffrey, I don't think I do, but my subconscious does. And so I just let my subconscious go, and then I follow it through, and it takes me to the end. So I, I wrote one outline once. It was a two-page outline, kind of like what you learned to do in high school uh, in, in English class. And by the second page of my manuscript, I had deviated so far from what I thought I was going to do. I just threw the outline away and decided this is how I'm going to write from now on. And then I just follow the storyline. I follow the characters because the characters lead you where you're going to go. If I try to put my characters in a position, I've done this before. I've tried to put them in a position to do something. I start the, the story just grinds to a halt. And I sat there and I look at it and I try to figure out, well, this is not good. This is not working. Why isn't it working? And I asked David Morell, uh, as I mentioned a little while ago, I asked him one day at, at a writers' conference. I said, "This this happens to me when I try to." force them and he says you have to understand you don't force your characters to do something they wouldn't naturally do you already have them in your head they're already geared they already have their personalities they're going to do their own thing let them do it don't try to tell them what to do because you know, truthfully Jeff if you tell a, you know, a toddler to go this way he's probably going to go the other way and so yeah. that's how my mind works I follow my characters I'll let the plots develop out and then I'll let them do what I'm going to do yeah, I, I agree totally. I agree. I, I spent the longest I ever spent writing one book was eighteen months, and I didn't know until about thirty-four hours before I wrote the last word how it was going to end. Sure. Um, I, I, I was down to that last page and had no idea. I thought I had an idea, and I wrote it, and I said, "This is this is awful." So I erased the last page and a half, and and then all of a sudden, thing. This is how it ends. And I spent 18 months getting to that last 34 hours. So I, I understand exactly what you're saying. And when it happens, man, they ain't, 
I tell you what, it's better than hugging a cheerleader when that happens. It it just feels great. <laughs> well, now, now it can't be better. Be close. It can't be. I'm married in how it works, but it's, it's, it's a close second. Here's the funny thing. It still goes with me. I'm working on a prequel right now to my Red River series featuring a character named Tom Bell, which everybody just loves this character, and they keep asking me about him. So I decided I was going to write a prequel, and I've been working on it since about May. And, and and in between the time I started that one, I wrote a, a complete other novel that's in my agent's hand right now. But then I came back to Tom Bell, and I'm, I'm working my way through it right now. And I'm, I will probably write the end tomorrow. I'm at the climax. And my wife happens to walk through past my office uh, yesterday, and I looked at her and I said, I can't believe where this is going. These people are doing things that I had not planned. I can't get to the end because they're doing things that are so cool and making changes that, that I didn't expect. And she just stopped and looked at me, and she said, you realize you're talking about your characters. You're not talking about real people, right? And, and all of a sudden, <laughs> I thought, you know what? She's right, but they're real to me right now. And so they're leading the story. And, and, and people look at me. I can tell you, have you seen my, my picture? I, 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 you know, I, I'm, I'm a, white, a white handlebar mustache, uh, a cowboy hat. You know, we owned a ranch up until last year when we sold it. I've been I've been around college and outdoors and and and, and the outdoor country music all my life. Uh, I'm the guy that listens to George Strait most of the time or Dwight Yoakam or, or folks like that. But this is my little oddity that, that that people don't believe. When I get to this the third act and I get out of the last thirty forty pages, the big climax is coming. I turn on ACDC and I crank it up as loud as I can, and I <laughs> the music drives me. And it drives my wife out of the house. Drives me. But that's what gets me through the climax of my stories and listening to something like that. Now that's a, that's just downright weird, and even I'll admit that. Well, that's all right. Everybody's got to have eccentricities. That's what that's what <laughs> everybody thinks writers are eccentric anyway. So no, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Uh, we're I'm I'm having some doggone much fun. I, I'm. I've got a page and a half to go, and we ain't going to get to the rock hole if we don't start right now before Pam cuts us off. So let's talk a little bit about Uncle Ned, Uncle Cody, who were my two favorite characters in the rock hole. And tell me about the rock hole. Tell the listeners about this. I like this book. I liked almost every single word except for maybe the last one because I knew it was the last one. So tell me about the rock hole. Well, you know, the Rocco came out in 2011. That was my first novel in the Red River series. I didn't expect it to be a series I was writing as a standalone. And when uh, I got to my publisher uh, at Poison Pen Press, they they asked me to do two things. Number one, they asked me to cut 50,000 words out of the manuscript because it was over 140,000 words, which is way too long for a book. But I, you know, I, I've been reading Stephen King, who writes, you know, these huge doorstops, and so I, I had to go in and, and uh, cut 50,000 words, and by the time I cut them uh, and polished it up, I didn't miss any of them, uh, the, but that's a whole workshop that I give uh, all across the country unto itself. second thing she did is ask me to not kill off all the characters at the end because they wanted to make it a series, and so I agreed to do that, and this is where the, the Red River came from, but the rock hole set in 1964 in northeast and it's based on my granddad that was a farmer and a constable who uh, mostly dealt with dealing with uh, 
small town issues. You know, constables back in those days, out, out they they were uh, uh, an extension of the sheriff's department because the sheriff could couldn't get out to all these little rural communities. And so the constable dealt with local issues, you know, car wrecks or drugs or family fights or, or minor thefts and those kinds of things. And that's what my granddad did. He uh, he would after all day long plowing in fields, come in, feed his cows, and, and then go clean up. He took a bath. He didn't have a shower. He didn't have a shower until I put one in for him back in the mid-'80s. Take a bath. Uh, shoot. I didn't have running water in the kitchen until I put that in in the 70s. So that's that's how uh, our folks grew up. But uh, he would put a, he would clean up, get out of his overalls, put on a badge and a pair of slacks and his, his uh, Sunday hat. He'd go out and be uh, a constable and deal with those issues that I talked about. Well, I was I was around that all my life. I I the phone would ring at at two o'clock in the morning. We were on a party line back then and. Somebody call and say, you know, uh, somebody's off in a ditch out here. You need to come check on them. Somebody's cows are out. And that's the kind of thing we grew up dealing with or he grew up dealing with. And I I heard until uh, a series of strange events were going on, which became the basis for the rock hole, somebody out in the country uh, in 1964 was killing uh, and mutilating small animals and leaving leaving them to be found uh, by whoever came by. And uh, today we know that uh, individual was a budding serial killer working on his craft, but my granddad didn't know what that was back then. He just had somebody uh, doing all kinds of what he called meanness in, in Lamar County. And so he started investigating what was going on to the best of his abilities. And uh, he worked on that. He couldn't figure out what was why people were nailing uh, uh, raccoons to, to walls of barns and stuff like that and, and torturing them. Uh, but then he came across a couple of bodies over the course of the investigation several months, and he began to link those bodies to that individual who was doing uh, all those things to the animals. And he did that for, for quite a while, and I would hear about it up at the store when I was a kid. You know, we had a little general store, and all the old spit and whittle club would go up there, and the old men sit and talk. And, and it, was, it, was, it, was, it was their form of uh, Facebook, except – things you said, you had to actually say it to someone's face, which made things a little different. And uh, I would listen to the old men up there talking about these mutilations and the, and the bodies they found, and I was 10 years old at the time. And then all of a sudden, in my in, in my recollection, they didn't discuss it any longer. And I didn't think about it until I was grown and married and sitting with my granddad on the front porch of his little house looking at his cows one evening about two years before he died and I remembered in conversation uh, what had been happening and so I asked him, I said hey grandpa what happened I, 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 I discussed those things I just said about the, the animals and whatever and I said what happened, did you ever catch that guy uh, who was doing it was it somebody from around here and uh, he, was, he was watching his cows and he got real quiet. He looked over at me with his, and he had the coldest blue eyes you've ever seen in your life. And he, he, he put them on me for a second. I frosted up a little bit. And then he looked back out in the pasture, and he looked back over at me again. He said, son, sometimes some folks just need killing. And then he never said another word about it. And, when, yeah, that ran, that ran shivers up my spine. And I never asked him about it again. He died with the, with the, that story uh, and went with him, 
And, uh, you know, I, I wondered, those old farmers back then were a different breed. You know, they'd survived the Depression. They'd survived World War II. They'd, they'd survived Korea. And I wondered, did, you know, some of those folks back up in there take it upon themselves to deal with this issue. Uh, did, he, did this guy do something so heinous that they put him in a shallow grave out there in the in the bottomlands of, of the Red River and leave him there in the So that's the spark that created the rock hole. And from there, I just took my imagination and ran with it and created uh, Ned Parker, who was my granddad, Miss Becky, who was my grandmother. Uh, she was half tr- uh, Choctaw, not full-blood Choctaw. Cody Parker, who, you know, the, you see the world through those folks' eyes, and they, they were in their mid-60s in the book, and, and then you see the world through Cody Parker's eyes. Uh, and, uh, a relative of theirs, an odd little relative, is neither uh, truly a nephew, truly a brother, but close enough that they can, that uh, he is family. And you see the situation in 1964 through Cody's eyes, and, and, and the way the world was at the time. And you also see it through the eyes of a, a set of near twin cousins, Top and Pepper, boy and a girl. And uh, we see what those kids were thinking about during that period of time also. And so all of those blend together, I think, to give us the true flavor of what it was like. You know, Kirkus Reviews uh, in, 19, in 2011 named the Rock Hole one of the 12 top mysteries of, uh, of 2011. And I think they, I think I achieved what I was trying to to, to reach uh, with that book because it it got a starred review also from Kirkus and from from uh, uh, from Publishers Weekly and, and and several other professional reviewers who likened it to uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, which again was just such an honor to even be mentioned. Uh, my book be mentioned alongside that, and so those books that. That story led to the next uh, Red River book called Burroughs, and eventually led led all the way up to the one that's coming out in January of, of uh, 2021, which is Laying Bones. And each book, excuse me, each book we find we follow uh, these kids as as they grow older, as the adults grow older, and as the world changes from the innocence that we had in '64 to the darker days of uh, the Vietnam War and and the darker, even darker time of the late 70s when rock and roll music uh, shifted away from the, the, the Beatles and their, you know, their fun bubblegum songs to the darker side of uh, what came out uh, uh, with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young back in the late 60s. So you, you can follow these kids' progression all the way up through Laying Bones, which is the latter part of 1969. I, I get you, and I hear you, and I can't wait to – to clap eyes on it. I'll tell you right now that uh, I did not read The Rock Hole in 2011, but I read it this year, and it has made my top five of the, of the not mystery, top five books of the year, if not higher than that. It may be top three. Um, well, thank you, sir. And, 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 and Mr. Wortham, I can't thank you enough for agreeing to come on this and letting me guest host this. Like I said, it's a, it's a check mark on my bucket list, and it's a as a writer, it's a dream come true to talk to you. As a fellow quail hunter, it's uh, it's nice to have uh, made a new buddy. And we're going to sit down and we'll we'll shoot some birds one day. We'll talk some books, and we'll sit on the porch and watch the moon come out. 
Hey, man, I am so looking forward to that. Yeah, I, I think you're right. You're, you're a brother from another mother. And, and, and you know, I'm looking forward to sitting around visiting with you and talking books and talking characters and, and this, this crazy writing world that we've gotten involved in because it's not anything like I expected, but it's even more. It's wonderful. Well, it I is. have to tell it you, is. this has been one of the most fun interviews that I've sat back and listened to, and I can't tell you how long. All that Southern has me wanting to go out and drink me a beer, sit on the side of the road, <laughs> look from a dilly out front. I'm just ready. <laughs> now, I'll, 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 I'll have you do- I'll have you dipping snuff before the end of the evening. Oh, no, no, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, no we'll, just, we'll, so, just, we'll just tuck a chew in her cheek and let her go from there. How's that? There you go. We'll that's what you think. Now, now, I may live in the geographic south, but, of course, you guys know nothing is in the south until you head to North Florida. So, um, <laughs> but what a fun conversation. What a fun conversation. Jeff Crawford, when uh, you have a new book out, kind of new, tell us about it, please. Yeah, uh, let's see. A week and a half ago, I just released a two-book set, my ninth and tenth novels. Uh, it's called uh, "The Devil You Know" and "Troublesome Bones," standalone westerns, and um, I'm real tickled with those. That was another collaboration with April Rain to do the cover on that, and she yep. knocked that one out of the park as well. Um, and I'm. Uh, I've got three novels started, and I don't know which one I'm going to concentrate on because I hadn't fell in love with any of them, but I will, and uh, we'll get another one out before long. But uh, well, so I'm, Jeff, I'm, 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 I'm like out there to, pushing. Well, I'd like you to tell Revis about how you write your books on the device that you use. Uh, for I wrote, I used to use a laptop, and I hated it, and then I went to my phone and I wrote two books or three books on that. And, uh, that was, that was handy, but it was aggravating. So I finally switched to switch to an iPad and I've written two books on that. And I fell in love with that. The iPad is the way to go for me. <laughs> Good Lord, son, now, I can't even turn my wife's iPad on. <laughs> I just thought you'd find that interesting, Rev. I mean, I'll tell it's you. It's fascinating. Okay, so I want to know: Are you writing any more Hawks uh, in in Hawks World, uh, Rev? Well, uh, Pam, I really wish I could continue that series, but Kensington ended the contract after the fourth book, Hawks Fury, which was a surprise to me because Hawks uh, War and Hawks Target both won Spur Awards from the Western Writers of America Association, and so. I, I don't understand all the, the 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 mechanics behind the scenes when it comes to these comes to book sales, but apparently um, done unless they change their mind. So the Sunny Hawk series uh, ended with a fourth book, Hawk's Fury, that just came out back in May. I'm sorry to say. Well, you know, I'm I'm not a big western fan necessarily. I mean, I like some westerns. But I really got into the Sunny Hawk books. I really did. So, um, uh, you know, I'm sorry that it's gone. But, you know, I have your books on my shelf. I can always reread them. It's not like they're gone well, anywhere. You, you, I appreciate it. And those are those contemporary westerns. But they also have the same family values as the Red yes. River series. And yes. so I think that's the, the attraction to them. And there's, there's, there's humor in them. 
but they also deal with issues of our time. And uh, I, I, I really, I'm really sad that, that there are not going to be any more of those. But I'm working on uh, developing a new series to to go along with, uh, you know, to, to go along with the contemporary theme. So we're looking into that. I'm right so now. glad. Very good. Now, I also want to say, um, uh, Jeff, if you ever have a chance to come to a conference, you have got to see the three amigos in action together. That would be John Gilstrap, Jeff Deaver, and our friend Revis Wortham. They are hysterical. <laughs> I am honored to be considered friends with all of them. All of them have been on the show. They are all exceptional writers. But um, when you see Jeff Deaver, who looks like he could be a serial killer himself, with his, <laughs> his just penetrating stare, and John Gilstrap with his big happy smile, and then you see Revis Wortham with his his Stetson and his handlebar mustache. You are looking at a crowd that all you want to do is just sit around and listen. You don't even care if you get to talk to them. Well, I Isn't that right, hey, don't forget Mark. Yeah, it is, and I appreciate that. Don't forget Mark Cameron, who is always Mark with Cameron us too. Mark is a I know. fantastic Mark's writer great. in his own right. He's yeah. wonderful. He's wonderful. He, he is. He is. He is. Well, I have to say, though, I was very blessed in 2013, I think, is when you and I met Revis, and uh, yes. you just kind of said, well, come on down and sit with us, and then come on and sit with us at the, at the awards banquet, and, you know, I think a beautiful friendship started then. I am so grateful to you both for being here. One of the most enjoyable time I have spent on the radio in a long time. I wish both of you wonderful holiday seasons. Stay safe. Uh, love to your family. And Revis, you're up next. You got to pick the author you want to interview. And um, oh wow, you know, cool. Yeah, yeah. You know, you maybe want to get David to come on. You maybe want to get John to come on. I mean, his new book just—I uh, mean, all his books knocked me out. But whoever you want, mm-hmm. you know how to find me. I Jeff do. Crawford, thank you so much, my friend. Big guy, you're the best. Yeah, hey, I could. Uh, I couldn't have had more fun if there had been three of me. There you go. <laughs> All right. We'll see you on the flip side then. Okay. All right. Listeners, thanks for being with me. And thank you, mom and dad. I'll see you later. Bye-bye.